Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. 2030 sounds like, oh, it's years away. We can plan all that. Eight years for a big change like this is bugger all. We are, we are starting far too late for a 2030 target, but we have no choice because we're only elected in 2022. But 43% is a big ask. It's actually ambitious. You know, the safeguard reforms, you know, that's a big lever to be pulling, an important one. The rewiring the nation, $20 billion worth of expenditure to get to 82% renewables. That's a big job within 85 months. Hello, lovely people of podcasts. Welcome to the show. You're on Australian politics and you are with Catherine Murphy. And with me in the pod cave this week is Chris Bowen, Minister for Climate Change and Energy. And of course, if you're following the news and particularly the global news, you'll be aware that uh, the UN-led climate talks are underway in Egypt as we speak. And Chris is shortly to depart to COP, what number? 27. 27. But who's counting? Mm. Anyway, COP27 in, uh, in Egypt. So obviously I needed to bring Chris in to bring listeners up to speed with what uh, what COP is about, what what we think is going to happen, uh, you know, what what's the importance of the conference for Australia, and then we're going to drill down into a number of other uh, current policy issues. So, Chris, what uh, I have very fond memories of uh, of uh, traipsing around uh, COP twenty six in mm-hmm. Glasgow. Um, what is this COP about from Australia's perspective? Well, a few things, Murph. Um, firstly, we're back. Now, I'm not here to overstate, you know, what a difference Australia can make, but we can make a difference. And if you think about the two big differences between COP26 and COP27, it's a change of government in Australia and a change of government in Brazil. They're the sort of two big differences, and we, in our own ways, now bring a constructive approach to the table. Australia, uh, in the past, sort of lined up with people trying to stymie progress, stymie action. Now we're lining up with a progressive coalition trying to actually progress action and working together. So there's the actual negotiations at COP, which really sort of hit the ground you know, in the second week. The first week is more leaders' statements and, you know, yeah. uh, what have you. The second week is when negotiations really, you know, get to the business end. So we'll be there constructively. Again, I'm not here to say Australia's going to come in and, you know, change everything around and save the world. We're not going to do that, but we'll be uh, working with colleagues to change 
the dynamics. Uh, you know, in the lead up to COP, I've been talking to you know people like John Kerry and Alok Sharma. Um, um, without going into sort of the diplomatic finer details of those conversations, saying, well, you know, how's it going and what role do we best play and, you know, do you think you could do this, et cetera, and working mm-hmm. together, um, which is, uh, I'm told by uh, my international colleagues, a huge sea change in the pre-COP approach uh, from Australia. Mm. Yeah, incredible in COP26 because obviously Scott Morrison went uh, with a commitment to net zero, which was a sort of big deal in mm. coalition terms. Um, but uh, was very ho-hum in the real world. Was, uh, didn't, <laughs> yes, anyway. <laughs> anyway, um, so, okay, so that's Australia's objectives. Now, uh, in the opening days of the summit, a concept called loss and damage mm. has dominated mm. uh, certainly the discussions and the coverage. Mm. It'd be quite a few people listening to us, Chris, who have no idea what loss and damage is. So, so why don't we start with what that is mm. and then let's move on to where you think the COP will land on this point. So loss and damage is really <laughs> the loss and damage um, uh, that is encountered by developing countries in particular as a result of climate change. So if you think about every country pays a price from climate change. Yeah. Um, but developing countries are, have less resources to deal with that change and are often more impacted because, you know, it's not rocket science. If you're heavily dependent on agriculture in your economy and, you know, you've got ongoing droughts and natural disasters, that is a bigger impact on your economy um, when agriculture is a huge proportion of your economy is for many developing economies. Or if you're a small uh, island developing state, mm. You know, natural disasters in some cases have cost 200% of the size of their economy, for example. So loss and damage is actually about how we deal with that. Now, it's actually not a new concept. It was actually mentioned in the Paris Accord as something the world is going to have to deal with. That's that's actually been in the Paris Accord. So Australia signed up to the Paris Accord under Tony Abbott. Um, So therefore, we've been involved in this conversation, but we haven't been involved very constructively in Mm. the past. So we have said on behalf of Australia, we support loss and damage being part of the agenda. We believe it's time to have this conversation. Um, now, that doesn't mean, again, that we sort of solve all the problems in Sharm el-Sheikh, but it does mean that we make progress, take the ball forward. Now, to get to the domestic politics uh, or, and domestic substance, you know, briefly, Tony Abbott, uh, sorry, Tony Abbott, throw it in slip, <laughs> understandable in some circumstances. Peter Dutton um, wanders around saying, oh, this is a massive compensation bill for developing countries that Australia shouldn't have to pay. Well, in fact, the, the Egyptian chair of COP, they're now the COP chairs who are putting this on agenda and leading it, specifically say, and the agenda says, um, the outcomes of this agenda item are based on cooperation and facilitation and do not involve liability or compensation, right? So it's not about sort of writing a blank check and saying, oh, here's a, here's a check to compensate you for what's going wrong. It is about saying, well, how is your country struggling to do with this and how can we help? And that strikes me as a particularly unobjectionable and indeed good thing to be doing. And it involves, you know, in, in a, a discussion about um, you know, how our aid budget works with that, how we can best engage in that. So you're going to see just some dom- domestic sort of cheap politics by the the LNP on this. This means they're doubling down on the last 10 years. They haven't really sort of changed, but that's okay. You know, we, we, on the other hand, are dealing around with our colleagues around the world. Egypt is proposing a discussion about a, a fund which would be finalised in 2024. That's, I mean, Egypt is sort of won the COP presidency because they're seen as champions of the developing world. That's what they're proposing. So we'll engage in that conversation. I don't envisage, you know, we'll, we'll walk out of Sharm el-Sheikh and everybody will say, oh, this is wonderful, loss and damage is fixed. I do hope 
that we are able to progress the conversation and in a way that the developing world has a serious voice at that table and the developed world uh, is engaging very seriously in those concerns. Just conceptually, because obviously we can't talk about a fund which is likely mm. not signed, sealed and mm. delivered by the end of COP, or, well, or maybe, may but too soon to say. No, I don't think it will. Yeah, yes, too, too soon, soon to, to say. say. Right? So we can't obviously drill into a fund that doesn't yet exist. But just conceptually, uh, there has been this sort of dialogue around green financing mm. initiatives for mm. a long, long time mm. where a, a number of, de- well, some developing countries just don't accept the proposition that we owe the developing world. Yes. Uh, some developed you know, countries don't. Some, some yes. developed, right? But then there's another subset of that, which is about multilateralism, yes. that countries want the sort of, in, in a sovereignty sense, to do their own deals mm. with their neighbours. I'm mm. thinking about us in the Pacific because yeah. obviously we are already dealing with loss and dam- damage and adaptation and transition in the Pacific, yeah. right? So just conceptually, is this, would Australia, you know, are you moving in a direction where you're okay with a multilateral fund in the event that's where it lands or... Will we seek to say we've got a substantial age bu- aid budget, we have our own initiatives in the region, we are, we are sort of taking care of the region. That's a terribly paternalistic way to express that, but you know what I mean. Yeah. We're, we are, we're stepping up in the region, we're yeah. present in the region. You know, I'm just, I'm, sure. I'm interested no, in no, that. No, no, I, I completely understand where you're going with the question. And um, I mean, we'll work all those issues through, right, but perhaps if I could use the example of a similar issue, which I think you're sort of uh, hinting at in your question, which is climate financing, which is yes. a bit different to, yeah, to, different. to yep. loss and damage. Climate financing is, you know, helping countries, developing countries in particular who have limited means, you know, get get their emissions down, et cetera, and work with them. So there's a very similar debate going on in that space. Now, there is the Green, green Climate Fund, yes. uh, which basically the rest of the developed world is in and Australia is not. Scott Morrison took us out. There are some people who say, well, Australia should just rejoin that. There are people in the Pacific who, have, however, say, well, the Green Climate Fund doesn't really work for us very yes, well. Okay, yeah. um, it, doesn't, it doesn't cater for our needs. Mm. So it's not a no-brainer. You do have to think those things through. Yeah. So we've said we, we went to the election promising our own Pacific Climate Financing Fund, which yes. we're getting on and delivering, and that's very important. We know we have to have ongoing discussions about green financing, climate financing, particularly with our focus on our region. Um, what's very important to me is what the Pacific tells us is best for them. Yeah. You know, you can you can mount the argument, to be very frank with you, you can mount the argument we should rejoin the Green Climate Fund and get on the board and try and fix it, or you can mount the argument that, well, actually in the Pacific that doesn't really work very well, so we should focus our efforts. These are things that we will work through. The Green Climate Fund doesn't have a, a replenishing round until next year, so... Yeah. Um, uh, you know, we, we very much recognise that under the new government, we're back in green financing and climate financing. Hence, we've, uh, we're establishing our own Pacific facility yep. to assist. Um, but then we need to have ongoing discussions, particularly with, you know, our Pacific uh, colleagues about, well, you know, what's next? How does it look? And, you know, Penny Wong, Pat Conroy, the Minister for Pacific and I have had and will continue to have strong engagement about, well, what's the right way through here? Mm. And just uh, just one more on COP and the dynamics of COP before we come back to domestic issues. Obviously, I mean, you know, there's been a great observable rapprochement between Australia and the Pacific, but obviously Pacific leaders do want the government to go further in terms of phasing out oil and gas and other things. You know, thus far, that's been expressed, I think, very diplomatically in terms of the Pacific. They're not 
you know, they're not shaking your cage, but we do know that is the view of a number of Pacific countries. So you can understand, I'm sure, at one level, you know, the argument that we're, we're assisting the Pacific with the transition while still being a major exporter of fossil fuels, which is causing the problem. Now, let's not get tied up in the sort of uh, cop detail about where emissions are counted. I mean, no, let's, no. let's not do that. I'm just asking you conceptually, uh, where do you think the, do you think the Pacific will continue to press that point and will that become a source of friction because we've sort of been through this cycle of yeah. rapprochement, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, inevitably that sort of, you know, you touch down and then, you, and then that opens a new cycle of something else. Yeah, yeah. And, well, look, you're right. Um, I mean, Penny has made Pacific engagement just the, the motif of her foreign ministership so far. Uh, Prime Minister's been deeply engaged with I've been deeply engaged with the Pacific. Uh, on your specific question, I find when I sit down with my Pacific colleagues, these are very constructive, reasonable conversations. So, so 1.1, obviously, it's a sea change because we're 0.1 having the conversation, which yeah. is a rather big step forward, yeah. shouldn't really be, but it is. Secondly, when I talk to Pacific colleagues, whether they're serving ministers or, you know, former presidents and prime ministers who take an active role in this, which I deeply respect, and I say, well, you know, here's what we are doing. You know, here's the, the just let's put the headlines aside for a moment. Here's what the government is actually doing, you know, and I stepped them through. Our safeguard reforms, our rewiring the nation, our 82% renewables by 2030 target, um, you know, that, and, you know, on the safeguard reforms, just what it means for the 215 biggest emitters, and, you know, and all the things we're doing. And I point out that our target is 43% emission reduction by 2030, you know, and I know oh, some people say, oh, yeah, well, you know, it should be 50 or 75 or whatever. And, you know, I, I don't mean to dismiss that. I get and respect that point of view. But my, when I actually explain just what a big task it is to get to 43%, it is actually a big job in 85 months. You know, 2030 sounds like, oh, it's years away. We can plan all that. Eight years for a big change like this is bugger all. You know, it is It is a really we – are, we are starting far too late for a 2030 target, but we have no choice because we're only elected in 2022, right? But 43% is a big ask. It's actually ambitious. You know, the safeguard reforms are, are, you know, that's a big lever to be pulling, an important one. The rewiring the nation, $20 billion worth of expenditure to get to 82% renewables. That's a big job within 85 months. And when, when I, I find, very genuinely, when I talk Pacific leaders through this, they say, oh, geez, yeah, you actually are right. You <laughs> actually are. You actually are doing a heavy lift in Australia. And uh, I find that conversation, you know, just, does go very well. And, and to your point about exports, when I say, well, look, we are we are working with our coal communities and being honest with them about the future and pointing out that 80% of our trading partners are committed to net zero. So the world is changing, you know, so we, we do need to diversify these economies and create new jobs in, in traditional energy areas so that as this change inevitably unfolds, and we are honest with the people of, of central Queensland and Hunter Valley about this, which our predecessors were not, Again, the Pacific leaders say, yes, I completely get that. I completely get your approach. Mm. And uh, we'll come back to the those two policies you flagged specifically, yes. which is the safeguard and rewiring yes. the nation. I've got several questions right. on, on both. Uh, but I want to start with, uh, you know, the, the issue of the, well, quite a long moment, mm. um, 
which is energy prices. Yes. Obviously, this was all supercharged. Well, it's sort of come in steps, hasn't it? The ACCC warned uh, that, you know, mm. bills would go up. Uh, then we had the Treasury forecast, revised mm. Treasury forecast, 56% increase this year and over, over, well, by the end of next year in terms of um, expressing that most accurately. Now, uh, we've heard for several weeks now about a regulatory intervention that the government is working up. It sounds, uh, based on what you're all saying uh, with your various sort of emphases and nuances, that it'll be something like a, a mandatory gas code, some sort of price mechanism, some sort of East Coast gas storage or gas reservation, something in that hemisphere, um, and then something on electricity prices. What? Well, <laughs> <laughs> look, Murph, what we are doing is saying this is obviously, you know, we, we, we completely understand the importance and the urgency of the task. You know, gas is selling at double what it did in December, which is not that long ago. No. Coal is almost double what it was selling at in December per tonne. So this is a cost of living energy uh, crisis, which is caused by elevated fossil fuel prices. You know, just to be clear, I know you're not, this wasn't directly to your question, but I can't let the moment go without making a point before I get on to answering your question. There are some who say, and it's the usual suspects, the right-wing commentators and right-wing politicians who say, oh, look, see what happens when you're too reliant on renewables. Mm -hmm. When the price of gas in Europe is nine times what renewables are, yet some geniuses still seem to think this is caused by renewables. It is not. Mm. And we have to call a line under that lie. This is caused by elevated gas and coal prices. Now, what does the government then do? Mm. Well, what the government then does, Murph, is work carefully through the options. Mm -hmm. Methodically. You've yes. heard us say it before, yes. but it also happens to be true. Well, it's, it's also important. <laughs> it's I'm also paying, important. I'm I mean, the point. The, the, if I can say to you, the regulatory architecture around energy prices is very complicated. Yeah. I mean, if you were starting from scratch, you probably wouldn't design it this way. You know, there's state powers, federal powers. There's, we've got AEMO, the operator. We've got the Australian Energy Regulator. We've got the ACCC. You've got ministerial powers. You've got you know, you've got to check through the your constitutional powers. So that's point one. Point two, you've then got to be satisfied that what you do will work. Yeah. Right? We are not going to announce a package and then say, oh, well, and we'll wait and see if it works, you know. So that has got to be a very rigorous process. And we're not, again, just going to sort of say, oh, well, there's lots of bad headlines. We better whack an announcement out there. You know, that's just not how this government works. I know there's a hunger for the detail. I get that from you and your listeners and all your colleagues here in the press gallery. But we are not going to sort of say, well, we, we, we are desperate, you know, we're getting questions in Parliament, so we better whack an answer out there. We will announce our package not a day later than we are very confident that we've done all the due diligence and work, but not a day before either. Mm, mm. But conceptually, again, and I mean, I know this is, you think I'm just sort of trying to work around the non-answer, which I guess, you know, full disclosure I am, <laughs> but I'm also interested though. I mean, I can sort of see the gas elements of it, hmm. although, I mean, I can't obviously see the full picture, the the electricity elements I struggle with because there's already a de facto price cap in electricity. If you fiddle with that too much, you, you are potentially hmm. imperiling retailers. I know they're not the most popular people on the planet. No, right no, but you need point, to be careful. I mean, there's no point sending, you know, putting pressure. Look, uh, Murph, I mean... This is in the cabinet room, so I can't sort of talk through all the options sure. and, and all the pros and cons. But all I can say is um, that, you know, we are very 
alive to the obligation us to ensure that you know, these prices, which are caused by Vladimir Putin, mm. you know, and by you know ten years of policies function here, but um, but by the war in Ukraine, which is seeing every government around the world grapple with this, all, all very similar. When I talk to my international colleagues and we compare notes, it's a very similar yeah. story, right? Yeah. So we then need to come up with an elegant, carefully designed, properly constituted policy response, which deals with the various elements. People sort of say, oh, you've got to do a gas, got to do a gas. Well, you know, the coal forms the energy price a lot of the time. Mm. Um, so I'm not saying it's, you know, all the fault of coal, but you've got to have a holistic approach. Yeah. Um, and that's what we will do. And just just one last one, the states. I'm, I'm interested, obviously, Daniel Andrews and Peter Malinowskis in South Australia, mm. both variously sort of fiddling at the margins of you know, the state moving back into the electricity sector because mm. obviously it would be a hell of a lot easier to control prices if the government owned the generators. So given that we are, I mean, it's sort of funny. You and I have had policy conversations over a very long period of time, Chris, and it's sort of, you know, we're so far off, you know, first best policy at this point, it's sort of like you can't even see it through a telescope. Mm. Like, you know, five years ago you and I would have laughed if we had uh, thought about reversing privatisations. Mm. But are we in that territory I, I don't in think, a policy Murph, sense? I don't think, that's so much about prices. I think the Victorian announcement and, you know, Peter Malinowskis' plans for a green hydrogen state-owned power plant, for example, are sort of, that's more about, saying, well, this renewable energy investment task is so big that there's room for private sector and government and yeah. we don't think private sector can do it alone. So you don't think it's a sort of slow unscrambling of the... Yeah, well, I don't think it's about prices primarily. I think it's about renewable energy is the cheapest form of energy, so more renewables in the system makes lower prices yeah. and we need more government investment in renewable energy. And I think, you know, to be very frank, I think people in Victoria look at Queensland where... They are still state-owned yeah. and think, well, that's very handy. You know, the Queensland government's got its hands on the levers and making big decisions about renewable energy and thinking, well, we don't have those levers anymore. That'd be nice to have. Mm. I think it's more about that. Yeah, but it's sort of interesting, though, the point being, are we are they trying to put their hands back on the levers? But anyway, let's go to um, rewiring the nation now. Mm. So obviously this has been a, you know, the sort of political contention about this is starting to build up. Now, again, for people who don't know about this policy, uh, this is a uh, the, the government's plan basically to, to build high voltage um, transmission infrastructure basically to kind of bolt renewables into the grid. So for people who have never heard about this policy uh, and don't understand it, just a few quick questions. Yep. Um, how do you actually execute this? Who owns the infrastructure? Who builds it? How can you resolve capacity constraints that everybody knows about in any sort of construction project at this point in time? And uh, is there a risk of gold plating, which is the old argument in yep. electricity, right? Because the whole direction in the power grid in Australia over the last several years has been towards distributed energy. And by yep. that, I mean solar panels on people's roofs yep. Yep. rather than people building mega power plants. Yep. So give us give sure. us the sort of- Well, let's of, work back. Yep. Um, let's take the questions in reverse order. There's no risk of gold plating. Gold plating was, if there ever was gold plating, was not about transmission. Uh, it was about poles and wires, which you know the little poles and wires, if I could use that term, not the yeah. not the um, not the big transmission. The big trans um, yeah, transmission. Now the reason there's no transition without transmission is because renewable energy is spread more widely across the country. Yeah. Right. So everybody sensible in the energy system, everybody sensible thinks we need more transmission um, because you've got to get the renewable energy around the grid more efficiently, and you know. 
People say, oh, the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. Mm. Well, it's normally blowing or shining somewhere in the grid. <laughs> you know, if it's not, <laughs> no, I know. It's if it's not blowing and shining God. in Adelaide, it's probably blowing yeah, and shining in Brisbane else. and you, you yeah. need an, yeah. an efficient system to get the energy <laughs> around yes. around the grid. Yes. Um, and so renewable, who, who owns? When renewable who energy owns? is spread, I will, I will yep. answer that question, but yep. renewable energy is sort of more spread around the country than coal and gas, which is t- tends to be, you know, more geographically clumped. Yes. You know, so therefore... So it's an engineering Correct. question. Correct. Okay. Now, so as to who owns yeah. so then, well, let's go, I will, when answering who owns it, so well, firstly, what is rewriting the nation? Yep. Rewriting the nation is a $20 billion fund to co-invest with other people to get the transmission built. Now, who owns the transmission will vary from project to project. So take, for example, Marinus Link, which is the big one. For right or for wrong, for for some people call me crazy and some people would be right, but for right or for wrong, we did the most difficult, complicated, most important one first, mm-hmm. which is Marinus Link. This is one that your listeners, our listeners probably will have heard, talked yeah. about over the last 10 years because yeah. it gets talked about a lot. Nobody's actually done anything about build, no. building it mm. until we came along and we said, well, enough, enough talk, let's get it done. So Marinus Link, for example, will be owned jointly between – Victoria, Tasmania, and the Commonwealth yeah. on behalf of the Australian people. So that's a that's that's a the second and third links between Tasmania and the mainland. Yeah. There's one link at the moment. This will be the second and third link, and that's important because Tasmania is already at 100% renewables, and they can get to 200% renewables. But there's no point in them getting to 200% renewables unless they can send the power to the mainland, mm. and they need more links to do it. Very important, big deal, very complicated. I don't mind telling you when we started. Victoria, Tasmania and the Commonwealth were a fair way away in our starting positions and negotiations. <laughs> Everybody agreed it was a good idea that somebody else should pay for. That's why it hasn't been built yeah. for the last 10 no, years. that's right. We came in and said, well, okay, well, we're coming to the table with some substantial cash here, but I need you guys to step up a bit mm. too. And we got there in very good faith and very good discussions with my colleagues, Lily D. Ambrosio in Victoria and Guy Barnett in Tasmania. But other projects will be different, mm-hmm. okay, because you've got – Projects where the private sector is interested, like, you know, I don't want to sort of go through each project and no. who's interested, but, you know, you've got big transmission companies like Transgrid um, who are working on projects in conjunction with state governments where we can come in and we can take, you know, we can either take an equity stake or we can lend money or we can, so there's, there's going to be various options. Yeah, well, you can de-risk in a regulatory Correct. sense. Yeah. So there'll be some, you know, it, it is the government getting back into this space and I, I'm unashamed and unapologetic about that because we need to, but it's not also about saying, well, there's no role for the private sector here, of course. You know, this will be a genuine partnership. And what about super funds? Oh, look, well, I mean, they may well invest, but they won't be, I don't envisage them sort of having direct ownership of a particular line. They're mm-hmm. more likely to sort of work with somebody like a Transgrid or an Osnet or something and provide capital capital in some form or other mm-hmm. rather than saying, well, this this particular line is owned by CBUS. I, I don't... Sort of what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? They have the, you know, people doing Correct. the shape, Correct. people doing the industry Correct. super fun shape. Yes. Anyway, okay, uh, the safeguard mechanism, yep. um, which again, for if you don't speak fluent safeguard, bless you all. Uh, I guarantee you will by the end of uh, the next three years. But basically, this is an Abbott era mechanism, which the new government has. Uh, adopted and the the simple explanation is it's a mechanism to reduce uh, pollution in the industrial sector, so big players, smelters and, you know, Mm. people who pollute a lot. It's a mechanism to do that. In the past it hasn't worked. Uh, The proposal is to make it work, right? So that's the sort of potted version of the safeguard mechanism history. Now, 
we've seen, uh, uh, you know, some conceptual stuff. We've seen a discussion paper. We've seen a lot of players making submissions uh, saying, you know, uh, predictably, um, please don't hurt us. You know, please let the taxpayers pick up the entire tab for this. Sorry, mm. that's a bit unfair. There's a bit of that. I wouldn't... Um, that's a bit unfair. It yeah, is a bit unfair. Uh, m- m- there's 240 submissions and I've got to say most of them, I've read all of them, you know, with highlights and post-it notes and mm. what have you. Yes. Most of them are very constructive. Yeah. They've got their own right. point of view and they're arguing the best interest of their industry and that's actually their job, like I get that. But most of – there's a few who are a bit, you know, this shouldn't apply to us. But by and large, it's, well, if you're going to do this, we think this is the best way. And, I, I you know, I welcome that feedback. Yeah. Mm. Well, no, no, I'm being a bit flippant. Anyway, <laughs> but um, – so w- first first question is when will we see the government response to that discussion paper? Uh, this year. Mm-hmm. This year. I'm working through it. As I said, there's 240 submissions. There's a lot of different views in those submissions. Um, there's submissions from peak climate groups and environmental groups, which I've been through very closely. There's submissions from all the industry groups. In some cases, Murph, the biggest contradiction is not between those two groups. It's between the industry groups because, mm. you know, different models suit different industries well, that's better. that's the thing. That's, that's, the, yeah. that's the collision point I'm coming yep. to, I guess. Yep. So it's- there's about 10 – I mean, you know, we went to the election with this policy. Um, we said we would do this. We're doing it. Um, it was recommended by the Business Council, backed by the Australian Industry Group and ACI. So if this is a you know a good policy, but there's a lot of detail which could only work be worked through sensibly in government with the resources of the department, etc. And we're doing that. And so um, there's about you know ten or eleven decision points uh, that we need to make about about detailed design. Yeah. You know, and you haven't done that yet. In the process of doing that. You know, and I'll I'll be ranking recommendations to the Prime Minister and Cabinet through a proce- proper process. Yeah, talking to them about the pros and cons. Um, if I just say this, you know, when when I come out and announce it, the world in which everybody says, "Geez, Bowen got all those decisions right," um, in my view, does not exist mm. because you know everybody has different views. But what I'm working on is a good policy package, mm. right, um, which achieves real emissions reductions, but also doesn't. Close industries down and say, "Well, we don't want you here." Um, you know, and the emissions just go somewhere else. That that's not a sensible outcome. What we want is a sensible outcome working with industry to reduce their emissions, really reduce their emissions, in a sensible way, recognizing that every sector is different. You know, there are some sectors. To be fair to people, just to be very clear, there are some sectors where abatement is more difficult, yeah. where the technology is further away than others. Mm. You know, where they're working on it, but you know, um, in a particular industry, when the industry says we'd love to reduce emissions, but the technology is probably five years away, there are some instances, not all, there are some instances where that yeah, is, that where is correct. A legitimate so, therefore, you have yeah. to work that through. All right. The beauty of the safeguard mechanism, why I uh, recommended to my party we keep the architecture, is because it does enable you to, it's not a one size fits all, right? It does enable you to at least have some flexibility. You've got to have one policy framework, but there is the opportunity to say, well, you know, we're going to do it this way and this will apply in this sector in this particular form and this sector in a slightly different form. It's the same policy framework. And uh, interestingly, um, well, two quick questions on this. I have asked you this question before, but I'm I'm still puzzled by it Um, because the electricity generators are nominally in the safeguard, but not really. That's correct. Right? Wouldn't it be a lot easier and, and potentially cheaper in terms of trading credits and all of that sort of stuff, if electricity was in and properly in? I don't think so, Murph, because you have a, you have a different regime for electricity. Electricity is really about, I mean, le- the electricity companies by and large know what to do, right? 
they know they need to move to renewables and to varying degrees they are moving to move to renewables. But then they say, quite rightly, that we don't have enough transmission <laughs> to, yeah. get, to get it through the system. Yeah. The, the transmission grid's congested. The rules aren't there. So it's a different set of problems for electricity as opposed to the safeguard mechanism facilities, which are, as you said, you know, an aluminium smelter, a coal mine, a gas facility, the two airlines, different set of problems. I still hanker for an economy-wide solution, forgive me. Uh, I know know that's ridiculous. We're so far away from that. Um, Interestingly, in just last one on safeguard, interestingly, um, uh, some of the business groups are now calling for a carbon border adjustment mechanism Mm. after, Mm. you know, sort of 12 months ago, sort of screaming as if this would be the worst thing that ever happened. But that was actually happening to us rather than us making that happen to others. You got any interest in that? Well, I, I, I don't mind telling you, um, that, that was in a lot of the submissions, which yeah. I found surprising. Well, I, was, I, I t- had to sit down when um, I it. I was quite, yes. You know, mm. tickle me pink. Um, Gosh, there you go. Eh? It, mm. uh, it was a sort of sea change because you're right. 18 months ago, it was with, oh, these sea bams, carbon water adjustment mechanism, carbon tariffs are a terrible thing. Yeah. Um, and Australia was calling for other countries not to do them. The government was. We weren't. Uh, the government was. Now we have such a sea change in policy approach that now people are saying, well, maybe Australia should do one of yeah. these. So I think that's interesting. I'm not here to preempt what we say, but it, um, the fact that it was a common uh, submission from several industry mm. groups mm. and some environmental groups and yeah. climate groups. Yeah. Now, it's a big thing. You know, I'm not here to suggest we could get this up and running by 1 July 2023, uh, the CBAM, yeah. because it's a big change, but um, I continue to um, work through the issues. Well, right. it's sort of one way of dealing with the old emissions intensive trade exposed it, 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 arguments. Yeah, some of the industries point out that, well, if we're competing, if we have this this regime yes. and we're competing with countries that don't have a regime, yeah. one way you could deal with that is a carbon yeah. tariff. And, the, and mm. the rhetoric pre-election from you guys was no more onerous restrictions here than elsewhere. Yeah, so. yeah and, 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 and making sure that, that industries – you know, that we want industries in Australia reducing their emissions and we want them still in Australia. Mm. There is, oh, God, I know I said one one last, but there is one more I need to put to you just mm. on the safeguard because most of it you can do via regulation, but you will need legislation for the crediting mechanism. Correct. Now, what happens if that hits the fence? Well, because I mean, I, it I, could I, easily, right? It could easily. I'd be hopeful that it doesn't because it actually, that's one area where the Liberal Party it was their policy in government. They why? just never got around to sure, doing it. but they, why would they give it to you? Well, because it was their policy, right? So if they say, well, it was a wonderful policy. Oh, you're, was, you're invoking reason, are but, you? Uh, right. Well, yes. Okay. Uh, call me old-fashioned. Interesting. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, um, and business and industry are very strongly supportive of this. If the Liberal Party wants mm-hmm. to do the old up yours to business and industry and say, well, it was our policy, but it's not now because we're cranky with the world, mm-hmm. they'll have to explain that. The Greens, oh, well, I don't want to speak for the Greens, but- the environmental movement, by and large, does not object to this. You know, sees so for our listeners, what it basically means is, if you're a facility that does really well and reduces your emissions, you should you can then generate what we call a safeguard credit, and you can sell that to a facility which is struggling. Most people think that's a good idea, including yeah. in the environmental movement, providing you've got the right regime and checks and balances. Now, uh, the Greens have sort of said that they are open to supporting the safeguard mechanism. But, and, I, and they want to see the detail. I don't blame them for that. It's not unreasonable for them to want to see the detail. The bill is quite separate to the to the regulation that I'll I- issue. Yeah. Um, and then for those who don't know the finer sort of details of how regulation goes, it can be disallowed by the parliament. Yeah. 
but it's straight vote. They can't move amendments. So no. They either say, yes, I like this it's regulation, like yes or, or no, no, we're voting against yeah. it. So basically I'll be putting it to the Senate and saying, here's what we're doing. You can vote to support the government in reducing emissions or you can vote against the government in reducing emissions. Mm. But having said that, again, it's the sort of government we are, that, you know, there's consultation, there's engagement, there's issues we work through. And so, look, it's, just, it's a bit like the climate bill, you know, when you and I and every other person in this building was asking me about the climate bill, I'm going to get it through. You know? mm. Well, we talk it through. Mm. We engage with people. We're mm. sensible government of adults. I cannot guarantee any particular result, but I'm confident that good people of goodwill mm. will do the right thing and we'll be okay. Mm. It's interesting because it's sort of, I guess, pressure will be building up in t when you think about the grains, like base pressure will be building. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I fully understand they've got to work through their issues, they've got to see the details, I, I engage. You know, there's plenty of areas of disagreement between me and the Greens, but you can sit down and engage on areas where you can agree. Mm -hmm. And, again, you know, um, I, would in, I, would, I would deal with people of good faith across the parliament mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously, you came to this portfolio for a couple of reasons. You were interested in mm. the scale of the economic transformation mm. that's associated with climate mm. policy. And I think you wanted to give yourself a red-hot chance mm. to actually uh, pull pull climate policy yeah. out of the bin fire, right? Yeah. Yes. So, you know, there were lots of statements in the lead-up to the election by the leader, by yourself, um, you know, we, we're going to end the climate wars, words to that effect. Yeah. Are you going to end the climate wars? Red hot go, as you said. Um, it takes more than one side to want to end the climate wars, that's, of course. Yeah, that's the point. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say to translate is cost of living weaponizes climate action yeah, again. Of course. It makes it more difficult. Like we're just living in the real world here, when climate jumps jumps the fence from being, you know, an issue of science evidence and yeah. all of that stuff. To and when prices go up and, and the usual suspects go saying, oh, this is all the cost of renewables, you know, and the, it's very when difficult. people write op-eds in News Limited saying, oh, there's, there's only one reason for power mm. prices, it's renewables, which is a lie, yes. of course. Mm. Um, sure, it gets weaponised. But I would say this, Murph, I mean, we are, again, we'll engage with people of good faith. Yes, People on the other side want to play the sort of cheap old politics of the last decade. They can double down on that strategy if they want to. I mean, I don't think it worked particularly well for them in the last 12. It worked for them for a while. I can see that, mm. you know, kept them in ten office for a, so. 10 years, but did mm. not work in the end. Mm. Um, but, you know, we passed the climate bill through, as I recall, the House 89 to 55. That's not unanimous, but it's a pretty big good step forward, com you know, compared to... Oh, I'm not discounting and, the election no, no, result. And, and, and in no, the Senate, no. 37 votes to 30. By yeah. Senate standards, that's a landslide. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And ultimately, sometimes it takes time. You know, take the other big Labor reforms, you know, of... I don't want to sort of take us down memory lane too much, but Medicare, for example, was highly contested. Mm. Highly contested. John Howard went to the 1987 election saying he was going to abolish Medicare. Eventually... They just came to terms with it and said, yeah, okay, we're going to tap them out here. The Labor Party's won this one. Medicare is too popular. It's too sensible. We're going to support it. It takes a long-term Labor government, you know, to do that, which we hope <laughs> to be. Um, and, you know, in due course, the Liberal Party says, oh, well, we'll try this climate change denial and delay. It's not working. We might just have to get with the program. It might take them longer than you and I would like and our mm -hmm. listeners would like, but maybe they'll get there. But, you know, we will. We can do what we can do, sensible climate policy, supported by business, finally real action. It's a contentious area. You know, um, we get criticism from, you know, the left, from the Greens. We get criticism from the right. 
we will just continue with good, sensible policy. Mm, well, that's all you can do at the end of the day. Yep. Uh, Chris, thank you for making the time. I know it's a re- very busy week this week, parliamentary week, and you're heading into um, you know a week where you won't sit. I don't think your bum will hit a chair for the next uh, Well, I'm on an aeroplane for a while. Well, well, that's true. No, no, I was just thinking <laughs> about after that, running yeah. from one end no, of that. Once you, uh, once that, you land uh, at a conference oof, like COP, you do yeah, not stop. That all, is true. It's all go, go, go. So thank you for that. Uh, thank you to um, Alison Chan for uh, producing this week. Thanks to Molly Glassier, who's EP, while Miles Martignoni is on leave. Thank you to you guys for listening. And uh, and I will actually be travelling with the Prime Minister next week, so we may only get uh, the podcast about polling next week rather than the usual interview anyway. We'll see how we go. Thanks for listening. You know the drill. Tell your mates. See you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.